Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Saturn Vox podcast, where discussions of philosophy meet the liminal space we weave in dreams. This is your host and foolish navigator of the tension between order and chaos of this life, Michaela Ann. This week, we welcome guest Alexis Mincola, chaos magician and lead singer of the industrial metal band Three Teeth on to chat about all things music, magic, and how to dance your way towards self-liberation. I ask Lex some questions sent in by other listeners of the pod, such as how did he get into magic and what inspired him to weave it into his artistic creations? Why chaos magic? But we mostly spend the interview talking about one of my favorite things, the intersection between magic and politics. How does one remove themselves from the stranglehold of divine oppression? How does language use feed into false illusions of what is and what isn't? How do we cultivate agency and freedom while still maintaining order without allowing that order to become oppressive? We even make some time to discuss what it's like for Lex living out in the desert and the genus loci and how they have inspired him and his magic practice further. I was very humbled and graciously inclined for Lex's vulnerability and honesty throughout this interview, and I hope the rest of you find some moments of inspiration in this conversation as I did. All this and more on today's episode of Saturn Vox. To find more on Saturn Vox, check out their Instagram and Twitter at Saturn Vox, or visit their website www.saturnvox.com. You can also show support towards goals of better merch and equipment possibilities by heading on over to the Saturn Vox Patreon at www.patreon.com slash SaturnVox. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. And yeah, that's it. I'm uh, Lex, the lead singer of Three Teeth. Uh, just a guy who lives out in the desert and uh, tries to put some pieces of life together and uh, usually makes a mess of it. But uh, here to talk about whatever you want to talk about, really. Cool. Well, I'm glad that you uh, made the time and space to come on. I love your band very much. Um, I guess I can kind of segue in by bringing up, you know, back in, I guess it was 2018 when I was first introduced to y'all's music. It was actually through like chaos magic forums where people were like, oh my God, oh my God, somebody who's like very prolific in the music industry utilizing chaos magic and, and like this language um, and it was like a kind of a celebratory moment on the forum. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of give any commentary on how magic, you know, became such a big influence in your music. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think before it came an influence in my music, it just became an influence in my life. Um, I was living in Rome at the time studying political science. Um, and I used to hang out under a statue of Giordano Bruno, who... I had no idea who this character was. I just liked hanging out there because it was a nice place called Campo dei Fiori. And I would like, you know, smoke a joint, have a bottle of wine, hang out with some friends. And it just seemed like a cool meeting place because I just liked the way the statue looked. It was this sort of ominous figure in this really cool hood, almost like a cloak and it had sort of a mustache. And I just like, I related to the character, but I had no idea who it was. And then I uh, was talking to my history professor and he explained to me that it was essentially uh, a man who was burned at the stake there, uh, which I immediately thought, oh my God, that's even cooler now um, that I was just hanging out under the statue of some dude who was burned at the stake. My immediate next question was why? Um, and that he was deemed a heretic by the Vatican for exploring various topics of his interest, things like hermetic wisdom and, you know, astrology and just things that the church generally doesn't like. So, 
it was really from there that it sent me down a rabbit hole. Like, well, what the hell is even hermetic wisdom or sort of like Neoplatonism? Just things that like I had no idea. So it took me to uh, a library because uh, I'm not going to date myself here, but the internet wasn't as powerful then as it is now. So we actually looked things up in books. And uh, from there, it sort of just sent me down a rabbit hole. And from there, it became like a just sort of a long just sort of perpetual discovery of being a student of all things esoteric, um, which on a long enough timeline sort of devolve into chaos magic because you just sort of like, okay, cool. What can I learn here? What can I learn here? And then finally like, all right, what can't really be taught? Um, And I suppose you can be taught chaos magic and, things like that but i think it really defeats the purpose of chaos magic to try and put it in the box and teach it but um you know i think also just along the way i think a lot of it just really confirmed various hunches that i had about life which i found to be something that i i almost found like a sense of calm in it like i found that like um you know if i was working through some like difficult emotional time like digging into sort of these uh these pieces of literature almost like calmed me um, and sort of gave me a sense of, I don't know, uh, assurance that like, Hey, I guess what? Like life's just kind of crazy and no one really knows what they're doing. And people don't even seem to know about this stuff, but for the most part, it seems to make sense to my brain. So um, yeah, I guess I just never really stopped from there. Um, And I think like being a student is just like forever realizing how little you know about it and how much there more is there to learn about it. So it's something that I've just never really stopped. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the abridged version of it right there. Oh, wow. I love that. I agree with everything you were saying about, um, being a perpetual student. Also, I, I can't imagine being a political science, uh, major at a university in Rome and all of a sudden you get introduced to hermeticism and then you realize the occult has been tied into politics and history and we are never taught it. And it is, it's like, there's this sort of like, um, you know, the subtle energies that seem to have been like through lines in all history. Um, Some of it more blatant, but still never really discussed in, in, you know, what you would be learning in a more formal Orthodox environment. But you know, how many, uh, how many wars have been waged over various esoteric ideas that can be traced back to sort of magic. So, um, you know, yeah, it just seemed like you almost had to like do your own weird, you had to become like an esoteric detective to fill in the gaps that weren't being taught to you. And I think that that's something that I just, I don't know. I really enjoyed doing it. It sort of places you in your own Dan Brown novel, as cheesy as that sounds, especially living in Rome. Um, but you know, it, it was fun. I love this. So politics is another huge, you know, theme in the music that you make. Do you find that magic and politics explicitly go hand in hand generally? Uh, I I think that like everything in life goes hand in hand with magic. And I think politics is like really in many ways, like uh, a study of just like group dynamic at its its sort of biggest distillation so i think that like they definitely can't be separated from each other um i don't think that you know uh today's contemporary like like sort of like american political theater has much to do with magic um more to do with entertainment uh than anything but i i do think that at some point it's really hard to separate magic from really any facet of life in, in my head for for how I perceive it. Okay, so magic to you becomes a fixture of everyday expression. And then, of course, it will extend itself into your other uh, passions like politics or like music making. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, I I used to just be really passionate about politics. Um, You know, having studied it for quite some time, it was something that I felt that you know, music was a, a good vehicle for it. And being a child of the nineties where, you know, for me, um, you know, m- music was a great vehicle for, for angsty political messages. Um, but on like a sincere level, I think there's a lot of stuff today that almost feels like sort of cultural dilettante sort of uh, just cashing in on it. 
um, especially post-Trump era where everyone just had to write an orange man bad song, um, which I just I thought was kind of cheesy across the board. But uh, yeah, no, it just seemed to be um, a good vehicle for me to, to express myself more than anything. I think um, part of the heartache that comes out of studying politics is like you kind of enter it with this sort of precocious sort of bleeding heart that you're going to change the world. And by the time you sort of reach those uh, 405 upper level classes, you're like, wow, this is so fucked. Like everything is so broken and I'll probably never be able to do anything about it. And I think that's a tough feeling to, to sort of grapple with as a, you know, as a deeply, you know, sort of empathetic person that like, you're like, all right, great. Like, so what do I do? I just, I, I sort of let the apathy overcome me and, and just sort of say, all right, nothing's going to change. The system's too broken. Or like, you know, do I at least try and like express how I feel from my own sense of sanity? And I think that's where I, I landed on um, that for me, it was just a way for me to just make a sonic diary. You know what I mean? Like it, it was really just that. It was just something for me to express myself. And when we started the project, it was really had no idea where it would eventually go to, but uh, you know, the idea that anyone even listened to the music, it was really just for myself, like a bucket list thing. Like, Oh, we just should, we should make a record. And me and Xavier were like, we're playing around with music because we live near each other. And the fact that, like I said, anyone else gave a shit about that record to me was just a huge surprise. Um, but yeah, first and foremost, you just got to do it for yourself. You can't write stuff for other people. That's impossible. Um, you can only write it because you like it and it means something to you. Then hopefully someone else will like it. That's very true. And I think for me personally, that becomes a lot of what magic is really about at the end of the day is like unmasking, learning who your true self is, learning what your true will is. Yeah. Um, the, the funny thing is when I was asking people, like, what would you like me to ask Lex? A few people said, ask if uh, he used magic to make the record successful. Uh, but it sounds like you're saying, no, it was just a passion project. Well, I think that like, I think it depends on what we mean by magic, you know, like, and, and, and successful. I mean, I don't like the word successful because it can mean a, a lot of different things to a lot of people. I think effective would be a better way to describe it. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, with magic and its most baseline sort of function to me is focus plus imagination. So for me, there was a lot of focus and a lot of imagination. Um, and I think the more sort of laser focused you can get with something, you know, the more intention you can pump into it. So for me, yeah, 100%, I think that it had an impact on its effectivity uh, in terms of like how it affected people as they were listening to it, um, a sort of transference of energy, if you will. So Without a doubt, yeah, I think you could say that I used magic to make it more effective, but not with really a lust for the result of doing so, but rather uh, effective in that, like, it was a uh, a potent sort of um, energy that was sort of, uh, I guess, injected into it. So, um, but I think that's like with anything. It's like you could make any any form of creation, anything you do, if you really charge it with a sense of passion, a sense of care, a sense of focus, a sense of like real true imagination, it will have more of an impact on whoever else is sort of, uh, you know, I guess, ingesting it. But yeah. So if the whole point was about like your own self-expression and your own healing after reaching a point where you're like, uh, like you said, almost heartbroken from the political studies that you did in chaos magic. There's this concept of like glamour bombing yeah, where you can make a sigil and you can put it around to kind of affect other people's consciousness for good or for bad, I guess. Yeah. It sounds like there was maybe an unintentional or maybe intentional glamour bombing effect in which you wanted to, get these emotions out, discuss these emotions, heal through some internal stuff. And it charged the music, which then impacted other people listening who maybe felt the same way. I think that's a very good way to put it. Um, And yeah, for me, it was like, I was actually really like angry about some stuff during when I wrote the first record. So I really just wanted to get out some, some stuff in me. Uh, It was a good way for me to sort of exercise some of my, I don't know if it's aggression, but just sort of disdain for how everything felt at the, at the time. Um, And I think that, 
you know, for me, it was definitely healing to get that out of me, uh, sort of like a primal screen therapy. Um, and then I think that in general, yeah, I think that that energy can also transfer to people that can relate to some of those feelings, feeling trapped, feeling like the walls are closing in, feeling like, you know, uh, wherever you go, there's some sort of piece of bureaucratic red tape, just like, you know, drawing lines in the sand around this world that, you know, uh, really is, is just man-made nonsense. Um, and I think that, you know, it's funny because I, I I was kind of even unaware of a lot of this stuff. And I remember like even reading some various reviews or various other you know people's things where they're talking about some of the stuff. And it was like other people's analysis of the album made me realize things about myself, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting because, you know, people think that like, oh, it's like, it's got so much intention in it that must have been all mapped out and already done. But you're kind of like, you don't, it's like when you write a, di- a bunch of diary entries or you're journaling, or whatever, you kind of don't really have that bird's eye view until it's all finished and looking back at it. So you kind of do just like lose sight of all of it. But then when you finish the whole thing, you look back on it. And this is with all of our albums, I felt this way. That like in the middle of writing an album, you're like, what the fuck am I doing? I don't even know how any of this goes together. It's just those weird scraps and pieces and it feels like a mess. And I'm like, you know, it feels like my head's all over the place. Is there even a concept to this thing? But then you finish it. And then you like start organizing your thoughts with it and start, oh, this goes here, this goes here. And then you really have this weird sort of snapshot of your headspace for like a year to two years worth of time that is sort of immortalized in there. And I can go back and listen to any of our records and and any of their songs and just like be reminded of how I was feeling at that moment in time. And that for me has been like tremendously healing and, and important to like, I guess the creative process of why I do something. Um, and it wasn't even something I even knew existed until I had done it. But uh, four albums into it, you kind of go, all right, you hear people say, trust the process, which sometimes seems like a ridiculous cliche, but it's true. Like internally, there's some sort of con- subconscious things that are bubbling out of you that um, if you, if you get out of its way, they'll they'll find its way to the surface and you can sort of use that stuff to create which is cool so in a lot of magic traditions there's like the concept of the genus or like the daemon who acts as like a creative inspiration or like a muse with the magician and the artist do you feel like there is any semblance of like a spirit relationship with something yeah you could look at it like that or i believe that is like a greek word for the will even. do you know what i mean it's one's will it, whether you want to personify it into a you know um, a, a holy spirit inside of you, or, or a demon if you want, or you know uh, some sort of um, other aspect outside of who you are, but it, it's really just like that that core sort of of who you are. Um, and I think that yeah, in terms of finding true will, um, is really that's the great work. That's everything. That's like you spend you can spend many lifetimes figuring that out you know, let alone one. Um, and I think that it, it is work more than anything. And I think that's sort of the biggest misnomer in any real artistic endeavor that people think that you have to be divinely inspired. And that's not the truth. What you need to do is you put the work in. And I think most people generally quit before they put the work in. And I especially think it happens with people, unfortunately, with very great taste, because look, taste is usually what gets people into wanting to do creative work because they they know what's good. They like good stuff. They're like, oh, you have great taste in music or great taste in art. And they go, well, I want to make music. I want to make visual art, whatever it is. But they get really sort of heartbroken when the thing that they make isn't as good as their taste. And the only way to close that gap is the old 10,000 hours where you just got to like weed for it. You got to chew glass. You got to get out there and just really crank out work and crank through that early period, which is like you not liking what you make. Um, and I think this is the hardest thing for a young aspiring artist to just like keep, you're never going to be inspired all the time. So you just have to get up and crank out that body of work and just iterate, 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 iterate. And over time, you'll close that gap and you'll really like the stuff that you make. Um, or at least that's the hope. But I, I generally think that a lot of people quit before that. And I think this is to get back to the original thought. I think this is part of like finding that true will and why they call it the great work because you actually have to put in work. Um, it's never going to be that sort of like, oh, and then I walked outside and was hit with a ray of light. And now I have this idea and it's going to be perfect. It's like, eh, I wish it was that way. But unfortunately, 
um, I've always felt like I've never been talented enough that I just have to make up for it with really hard work. Um, so that's my one piece of advice out there. Just do the work. If you want to make something cool, just constantly wake up and do it every day or, you know, at least at some point through every day. Yeah, that's great advice for all all passions and things that people want to create in this life. The way you answered that question made me realize there's a big uh, push towards like not being enslaved to any kind of divinity in the music that you make. And of course, that ties into like your political message of we should all be liberated. Um, Do you have any like commentary on on the way that your magic uh, philosophy and metaphysics is set up so as to to skirt around any, any kind of subjugation to, to the divine. Yeah. I mean, for me, I feel like it's a good way to put it. Like, I feel like if there was like one way to distill down like what three teeth is, it's sort of, um, you know, uh, something that stands against all forms of oppression, psychic or indoor physical. And the idea that like, you know, you're going to sort of allow even like, a, you know, Uh, even if it is a a beneficent force, something to govern you. Like to me, it's like, you know, uh, you should break free from any sort of, even if you're like, Oh, I wake up and need my, my uh, astrology sign every morning. And now it's this. And now I'm like, Oh, and I'm sort of becoming enslaved to what this is telling Mm -hmm. me. It's like, no, you can break that covenant and rewrite the lines of your life in any way that you want. So for me, uh, from I'm just obsessed with the concept of freedom and what that truly means. Um, I'm constantly looking for that sense of what that is. And it it's tough. It's like, it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And it's, um, it's a, uh, you know, it's one of those concepts that you realize it's so limited to the idea that it's just like a word, but I think there's something so much more powerful there. And I think like, for me, the natural laws of, 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 of man and with the capital M, it's one of those things that it's, it's something that we're all exploring. And I don't think that uh, we should be held to, I don't know, anything but that in my mind, but um, I don't want to sound like some weird libertarian because I'm not. Um, this, is not this is not a political ideology. This is just a, um, a more of a philosophical ideology than anything. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's an abstract thing for me and it's hard to explain. And this is why I ultimately write song about it because it's like, it's really hard to just sit there and explain. Um, but yeah, no gods, no masters, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think like that, um, you know, it makes sense that the magical language that you're utilizing is very like Thelemic or that you had a lot or that you ended up in chaos magic because Thelema and chaos magic are the two magical systems that lean more towards this like liberated quality. Yeah. And I don't think that like, you know, um, you know, where, where Crowley was sort of like ordinary moralities for ordinary people. It doesn't mean like, you know, you should sort of use that as a rationale to act like an asshole, which, you know, some people tend to do with occultism. Um, but I, I do think that uh, at our core, we sort of know what we should and shouldn't be doing, uh, whether or not we can play mental gymnastics and sort of excuse certain things through, uh, you know, strange esoteric thinking. But I, I do think that, um, chaos magic has a lot to offer in terms of a bigger picture of like how to look at nature, for example. And I think that like, for me, you know, my magical practice started from, maybe not started, but eventually went into like, you know, doing things like more like ritual magic and ceremonial magic and things that are, uh, I don't know, uh, more performative and eventually just became really practical. Um, and things that, you know, uh, for me is just about observing, nature i spend a lot of time camping i spend a lot of time hiking and you know long periods of time out in nature by myself and for me like observing nature is such a great way to understand chaos magic um mm-hmm. you know and 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 sort of you know if you if you really get to the core of a lot of things it is usually a struggle of chaos versus order and vice versa where you want to all look at all politics you want to look at the way society is created. You want to look at everything. It's, it's you know, uh, even tyranny is on the side of order. It's not necessarily something that starts as tyranny. It's something that is like, okay, cool. We need to create a sense of order for human safety. 
Um, and then, you know, chaos is something where, you know, uh, it seems to be at odds with, I think the Germans call it chaos comp, which is a, a, the struggle against chaos is this sort of like really um, sort of baseline sort of fundamental uh, system that sort of is at the core of all things um, human. So if you go back to like ancient Sumeria, where you have Tiamat, which was the goddess of chaos. She was considered, you know, primordial blackness, chaos before the cosmos even existed. And Marduk, the hero, a male figure, go figure, um, had to slay Tiamat in order to bring the universe into order. Like there was no order. And this is to me the first lie ever told, um, you know, where this is the original cosmogenesis story of the Sumerians, the Enuma Elish, that... It wasn't until they killed chaos to make order that the universe came about. And there's something so interesting about that, um, where ultimately, I don't think chaos ever died. Chaos is alive and well. And I think that, you know, creating order is something that humans do um, predominantly out of fear, but also for safety for their loved ones, which is totally understandable. Um, And to create a sense of, all right, well, how do we prevent this thing turning into Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you know what I mean? It's like they're looking to have a sense of purpose that I think a lot of people are deeply afraid to find a sense of purpose while still holding, uh, I guess, a space for the giant question mark is like, we don't know. Um, and I think people are largely uncomfortable with question marks. So they like to fill it in with uh, socially constructed orders um, and at the risk of rambling because i could just ramble about this forever i think that you know um i i respect both sides of it you know i'm not just one of those people like oh we you know i'm on the side of chaos i i just i get both sides and to me that sort of relationship in both of those places are where i even started to explore politics um you know people talk about the new world order and stuff like that the new world order which people think is some sort of tinfoil hat you know version of a, a global cabal but no the new world order was just created after world war ii is a, a way to say hey how do we prevent that from happening again because that was an awful situation that just happened yeah. so maybe if we created some more order out of this and we can establish a more globalized system of safety to prevent all fucking hell from breaking loose. so i don't think that's a bad thing um you know establishing a sense of order there so um i don't even remember what the original question was but yes again i'm rambling i apologize I don't either, but you know that that was making me think about Saturn a lot. Mm-hmm. Like the story in um, Rome, in the ancient Roman city, when it was the mythical city that was run by Romulus and Remus, Saturn was the main god and he was not restricted, like no chains around his feet, whatever. Saturn kind of being primordial chaos, but in this mythic period where Saturn was the ruler of the city, it was said that like all the fields were golden, grains were always in production, people were always fed. The golden era of Saturn, yes. And then they say something fell out of order where that all changed, but that's a that's a real esoteric concept as well. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the notion that Saturn was at the center of our night sky for, for ancient night sky. Um, again, these are really sort of bizarre concepts that people love shooting holes in and saying this is nonsense. I just like it because I think it's entertaining. But that all tethers into that as well. Um, but that's cool that you know that there. Yeah, you bring up some of the Saturn potentially having been a, a solar entity in the divine uh, weapon of truth song yeah, yeah. i mean like saturn is a is, is a fascinating concept to me and something archetypally is has been a huge uh mystery for me that you know you can keep going down that and and you know there's an infinite amount of discovery there so yeah i've just i've always liked it um it's a it's a heavy it's a heavy one it's a ominous heavy one that um does it, it's i think at this point is on the on the side of control um and you know it's uh it's something that you know when our saturn return comes that's a that's a heavy moment i think for everyone um, let alone the pluto return that's happening for america right now which maybe we can talk about that a bit later um but yeah no it's definitely been a centerpiece to our music um not just aesthetically but yeah in terms of the message but yeah yeah the the 
I don't exactly know like what caused the change or what caused the shift, but the story then changes to like, if he has to be chained in the temple, because if he's not, he'll ecstatically dance his feet and that chaos will cause things to crumble. So there's that we need the order to prevent the destruction, which is also like very Nietzschean and like very ties into Bataille's idea of like, there's no real taboo in life, but we have to have certain taboos. So like murder should be a taboo. Otherwise people would just rampantly kill each other. Totally. And again, and that's why for me, the sort of the space that is a, the struggle between chaos and order is that real sacred space and that real sacred tension. And I think that it goes like across the board in life too. Like, when you're in the studio and like you're making music, there needs to be a tension. If there's no tension, two things pulling on either side, then, you know, if it's a guitar string, if there's no tension, you can't hit the right note. If there's no tension in the studio and everyone's just sort of like agreeing on one thing, then maybe you're not going to have that sort of evolved process. You're not going to have, you know, uh, there's so much tension in nature between, you know, uh, various things that it creates evolution. And I do think that we, we need that, um, you know, uh, it's it's a strange thing to think about, but like, you know, uh, war needs peace and peace needs war in that respect too, where, you know, you need the, you need the sort of the, the bitter to taste the sweet, et cetera. So I think it's a sacred space there. And I think we all need to be sort of mindful of tension across the board. You know? I love that. Yeah, that's a, a Heraclitus fragment about the tension of the string producing the melody. Um Oh, one of my favorite uh, philosophers. I love the nod to that. Yeah, this is great because I just threw it out there and then you get to give it the actual, um, you know, the academics. And I'm like, oh, great. I just said something. I sound smart. Not perfect. But I had no idea. I had no idea it was Heraclitus. So that's perfect. Yeah, it's just your musical brain understanding. And, and he was observing nature to come up with a lot of these things too. So it would make sense that the metaphor would would come about self-arisen. Um, Okay, so the next kind of thing I'm interested in is, so you li- you're you're living out in the desert. You're doing a lot of camping. You said by yourself. You're interested in these like ideas of maybe tension between the real and unreal, uh, horror and and safety. Are you experiencing? Is maybe this is a weird question, but are you experiencing any like paranormal? stuff while you're out there like i've seen all i've seen all sorts in the high the high desert's a weird place um you know joshua tree national park is uh 50 miles worth of park and um you know 250 million years ago this was an ocean floor um and that's why it looks the way it does and you know now it's five thousand feet up and you know based on whatever some plate tectonic shift heaving it up but i think that for one, I think the federal government knows what they're doing when they say, hey, this is our land now. Um, they generally like to take uh, the special parts and keep to themselves. Um, but then you also have directly across from it, 29 Palms Marine Base, which is the largest marine installation in North America. So it's a weird cross-section of like some of the most just pure, unbridled, untouched nature owned by the federal government. And then, you know, on the other side of it, you have like, you know, uh, you're getting a flyby by an F-22 Raptor. And you're like, yeah, what's going on over here? So it's interesting. Um, so a lot of times the things that I've seen, and I have on video as well, people love excusing that stuff. You're like, oh, what are these three huge burning circles in the sky that sort of keep disappearing and reappearing in different places and then zoom off? And then everyone goes, oh, that's just the military. And you go, that's a convenient explanation, isn't it? Like, what, what, what are, oh, those are, uh, those are flares, or that's new drones that they're testing. All right, cool, whatever. Um, but yeah, I've seen a lot of stuff that, that you know, um, doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily like what I find fascinating about this place. I think that if you've ever been out here, um, you know, you generally, you feel like you're on a glass marble hurling through space. Like that's how it feels. Like the night sky is unbelievable. You can see everything mm-hmm. every night. And I don't know, I just, we came out here to record our fourth album and I fell in love with it. And I just, I really, I really didn't want to go back. Um, I find that um, I'm not from Los Angeles by any means. I've lived out there for like 11 years. And uh, I don't know. I just, for me, I'm just sort of over big cities and I'm just really having a great time in my life 
just, I don't know, slowing things down a little bit, um, especially before I probably have to go out on tour in the later half of the year. But uh, yeah, I just, I really, there's something about the desert and it's, it's sense of expansiveness and it's sense of um, just total freedom um, and self-reliance that comes with it. The desert's a tough place too. You're like not supposed to really live here only by virtue of us, uh, you know, being able to control the temperature of our environments and all water and do all these things, but it will kill you. You know what I mean? Like it's the type of thing that if you don't have the right stuff, you'll die. Um, and everything out here is that, that lives here naturally is adept at its survival as well from the plants that like, you know, everything has spikes on it. It has, it's, it has its own defense system that's evolved because they're like, if you take its water, it will also die. So like everything is a hyper evolved sort of survivalist that you can just like sit there and space out and watch it behave and learn from it. And I just feel like for me, it's, it's, I've been just observing and just fascinated with it. There's like worlds within worlds. You could stare at any part of the desert, stare at it long enough. You'll just see another world in there and then another world in there. Um, and I'm not talking about just taking mushrooms all day, even though there's a lot of that, but um, yeah, it's a fascinating place. So that's a, an interesting thing that you bring up how different the vegetation is in the desert, because if you're using nature as a focus point for your understanding of magic and, and the cosmos and, you know, how the web weaves us all together, um, you're going to be getting a very different lesson plan from that environment than say somebody who is observing nature up in the Catskills yeah. or even here in my swamp, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It's a, it's, and it's a flora and fauna that like, it just was so foreign to me when I came out here. And I think that it, it feels almost foreign to earth in many ways. It feels like you're on a different planet. You're like, what even mm -hmm. are these? I mean, the, the yucca or the Joshua tree, this is the only place in the world where it grows. Um, which there's a lot of interesting context to that as well um, in terms of like it's, it's sort of strange uh, religious context of the Joshua tree. But um, there's something fascinating about that. Yeah, where it's like I came out here and there was a whole like kind of perspective shift. It almost felt like I was off world. Um, that I got to take a step back. Um, and, and I don't mean just like sort of like the, the sense of like resignation of like, all right, see you later society. Now I'm withdrawing, but, mm -hmm. but rather almost it felt like, um, like I was on Mars and I was like, okay, cool. Like this is like, now I have to like perceive everything else from over here. And it was just a perspective shift that was really interesting and cool to me. Um, I remember thinking to myself, cause you know, it was the time like Elon was like, oh, yeah, we're going to go to Mars. And uh, there was something I just found so foolish about that. It was just like, we got a perfectly good planet and we're going to go to Mars and like build malls on Mars. Like, well, what, like, is this, is this, is this billionaires are just going to be refugees in the future living on Mars? So I don't know. There was something very funny about that to me um, when I first moved out here and everyone's like, yeah, don't worry. We'll just destroy this planet and go to Mars. I was like, if this is our vision of the future now this is like we're, we're in a we're in a tough place um so well we can just send all of them to mars and the rest of us can stay here yeah on the planet. yeah i don't know i just feel like as a as a as a as a, as a human race we need to have a little bit of a better co collective vision of a future um which seems to have escaped everyone these days um and i think that that's what's got everyone sort of feeling very heavy these days because we don't really have it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine a, you know, a, a meaningful future right now. And I think that's a tough place to be in a collective conscious space. Um, I think it even affects the sort of time horizon where if we don't have a, at least some vision of the future, um, it, I think it sort of has everyone just kind of spinning and spiraling. I think it makes time move faster. I have no real science behind this, but I think psychologically, if there's no uh, feeling of a light at the end of the tunnel, then like, yeah, it's just like you're just kind of spinning out. Um, so I think that sometimes uh, we, we might have to give life our own meaning in that respect. Um, and I think that's tough for a lot of people to do. Um, I think that requires a certain amount of autonomy. Um, most people are looking like, what's the meaning of life? And, I think that's where I'm like, I don't think there is a meaning, but that doesn't mean there's no meaning. You just need to give it meaning. And yeah. I think that for most people, they struggle with that and they're looking for a meaning. And right now life feels really meaningless to a lot of people. Um, 
But again, I'm rambling, so. Oh, I mean, Viktor Frankl says that in uh, Man's Search for Meaning, that like you you have to create something for yourself in order to give yourself permission to even keep going. And I think that's true. And, you know, maybe maybe this entire reality isn't real, you know, like you you read enough philosophy and you do enough drugs and you start to question the nature of like anything you see with your eyes. Uh, but that doesn't really matter because we are here in the kingdom. We have to exist in the kingdom. Yeah, um, I, th- I think so. But I just, I, I feel bad for a lot of people that seem to like um, right now, like, you know, no, like not being able to buy a home or just like, you know, everything's so expensive now. And I just feel like everyone's just kind of like, what is the point? Like, you know, it's funny because I was having this conversation really with someone about, actually started as aliens, about like whether or not I believe in aliens. I had this thought, I was like, well, if you don't believe in aliens, that would mean that we are the only life force in the universe, in this wide, vast, infinite universe, which would mean that we're gods. And if we are gods, then like, why are you fretting about paying a T-Mobile bill next week? Do you know what I mean? Like, that's a real bleak version of like, oh, we're gods, but we're actually just like slaves. Um, And there's something about that. You're like, well, you better fucking hope there's aliens. Because we live life so fucking stupid 80% of the time down here that like, you know, it's just a hard, it's a hard pill to swallow. So um, he was like, yeah, you're right. There's aliens for sure. I'm like, cool. I'm glad we can agree on that. But um, yeah, I don't know. It it seems like we live life in a sort of very foolish way sometimes. Um, Like there's gotta be more to it than that. So for me, like a lot of what I'm hoping is to to be able to use magic and maybe a combination of magic and political theory to try to get people to be more aware of their own agency and their own ability to liberate themselves. Um, do you do you think that that is something that is possible or are you very much on the, I've studied too much political theory and we're all fucked. Well, I think when you're talking about self-liberation, 100%. And I think at the end of the day, that's why, you know, for me, our second album shutdown.exe was really about self-liberation and, you know, protesting yourself rather than getting out there in the streets and sort of ineffectually protesting against something. I think that at the end of the day, you know, we have to sort of, kill the cop in our head uh, before you go up there and try and chant a cop every day. Like, I think that that's the real challenge here. And I think that people self-liberate on a daily basis, just through generally pretty unhealthy means, I think. Um, I think self-destruction is a form of liberation. So, you know, whether or not you just worked 40 hours this week and then Friday comes and you go to the bar and you get absolutely wasted. I think that is a real shitty form of, of, of liberating yourself from feeling like you're getting out of the cage for the weekend. And then Monday comes, you go back in the cage. Um, and I think that to sort of find, you know, better forms of self-liberation, healthier forms of self-liberation, um, forms of self-liberation that are contributing to the uh, sort of Armageddon lust narrative that I feel like is, is, is super popular right now. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that's all possible. Do I have answers for it? Definitely not. But I think it's possible. I love that answer. Yes. Yeah. Kill the cop in your head. Yeah. Amazing. The important part. You know, everyone is constantly trying to beat down the doors of other things. And it's like, hey, why don't we do the self-work first? You know? Yeah. Well, you must know Paulo Ferre and his pedagogy of the oppressed. No, but please enlighten me. I feel like you're, uh, you're far oh. more well-read than me. No way! This is a political theory. I'm I've never majored in political oh, science. Well, there you go. There I go. I'm a fraud now. But yeah. I'm a, yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. I can edit that part out if you really no, want. No, no, no. By all means, I, I I think exposing my own ignorance is is a uh, is is actually quite self liberating. To be honest. But now you have to tell me. I agree. I love that answer as well. No, but the the pedagogy of the oppressed, uh, the idea there is that every every person who experiences oppression uh, views the oppressor as the idealized man. And so when they aim towards a sense of self-liberation, they end up adopting the mask of the oppressor and, and end up becoming oppressors themselves. So you could see this, for example, in the French Revolution when 
um, you know, Napoleon took over and then it just became another kind of fascist regime. Yeah, I, I think we see, we've seen a lot of this in, in politics and I feel like there's a few, a few ways to also express it in terms of theories, but yeah, I, 100%. It's like, um, uh, I, I think, I think a controversial opinion, I think Israel is also a good example of this, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm Jewish and I'll agree with you yeah, on that, actually. I mean, 100%. And it's like, it's sort of on a long enough timeline, we sort of all become the thing that we were fighting against in the first place. And I think that's just sort of the hypocrisy of human nature um, in general, like across the board, which is another thing that's always fascinating. I feel like, you know, the the sort of a limitless boundaries of our, our capacity to be hypocritical is really fascinating, to me, you know? Yeah, we're very complex beings, um, but I think that that has to do with this idea that we really don't have a fixed self, like we're constantly in a state of becoming, and yeah, that does make the quest for the the true will rather ephemeral, but it's like you said, I mean, that's why it takes a lot of work, you're constantly unmasking layers upon layers upon layers and whenever you think you've reached that golden center you know you could always melt it down and purify it even further i think that like this is actually a very like to me that is a good distillation of chaos magic right there um where you know you sort of just when you feel like you've you know uh, figured out that thing and then all of a sudden like that other counterpoint that sort of makes you realize that like okay cool that's totally not it and that sort of ability to live comfortably with the question mark that you know okay we are going to be oscillating between sort of ideas perpetually and that nothing is absolute and nothing can be hammered into stone and that we're just sort of messy squishy beings on this planet that are like you know uh, we need to sort of be uh, a little bit more forgiving and understanding of that. Um, you know, I think that political thought is is very much so frozen thought, you know, where you have sort of this idea that, uh, okay, this guy's a politician, he says something, uh, but then he actually decides to change his mind. And everyone calls him a flip-flopper. And it couldn't be that he actually just decided to think about the other side of it. He now becomes painted in that corner and he has to toe the party line. And he is now stuck in that sort of box. And that's the way we sort of end up partitioning political thought is the sort of like, you know, okay, that is frozen depth of intelligence, uh, uh, sort of dogmatic hollowed out existence that I think that stuff's really toxic to humanity, you know, um, sort of like, uh, uh, like dogma versus the dogma of religion versus mysticism. Like I think all religions, were based on sort of beautiful mystical thoughts, but then they sort of hollowed them out, filled them up with dogma, and then just sort of froze them into these sort of things that you could say, hey, I think we could probably control more people this way. Um, but yeah, I think that that that's sort of the same way with politics, where politics are born out of interesting ideas, oftentimes philosophical ideas, but then eventually get hollowed out into sort of more rigid sort of absolute thought forms that have no uh, ability to flex or bend or... or, or, or Move. Yeah, we need to give people uh, more permission to like dance their opinions yeah. instead of just saying you have to stand by what you said or not. You're either right or wrong, especially when, you know, like philosophically speaking, there really is no right or wrong outside of what we deem right or wrong. So why are you trying to place that qualifier on top of yourself so harshly? Which is, of course, um, a product of Westernization and Christianization. It's also a product of language, I think, and the way that we, you know, Robert Anton Wilson's concept of E prime, where you sort of like dispense the word is from your vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And it becomes very hard to speak like this, um, where you say things like, you know, uh, to me, Beethoven could be better than Bach, instead of saying Beethoven is better than Bach. You know, it becomes mm -hmm. a sort of absolute. And then, then next you know, people are arguing about whether Beethoven's better than Bach, as opposed to you could have extinguished that argument from the first place by expressing it um, throughout a sort of absolute context. And I think that, you know, language as a virus tends to sort of create this. And capitalism, for example, is something that has deeply affected the way we speak by virtue of we're constantly selling things to each other. There's no room for not anything but absolute certainty. I have to tell you, this is the best thing. Or else you're not going to buy it. You don't say, well, to me, it's worked pretty well. Uh, that's something that, you know, could work for you. I might, uh, might recommend it. But, like, that's not the language that we use in capitalism. 
capitalism, everything has to be self-assured. Everything has to sort of be, uh, you know, an absolute and, and sort of frozen in form. And I think that, you know, that it kind of makes us go insane as a result of it. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that will change anytime soon, unfortunately, but uh, I think as a, as a result of that type of behavior, we uh, all feel like we're sort of at the brink of our own sanity. And it's, I think we saw a lot of it with, um, you know, sort of like misinformation time period where like that was the whole thing. That was like the buzzword. Everyone's talking about like, oh, mis mis disinformation or whatever they were calling it. Um, and, you know, how do we combat misinformation? Oh, fact is this, fact is that. And then we saw everyone losing their brain. Like our reality started to break especially during COVID and people were like, like two completely separate realities were existing simultaneously. And it was fascinating to me because to one person, what was like, Oh my God, that's just misinformation to the other person. That was their total reality and vice versa. But there was no telling these people otherwise. Do you know what I mean? Um, and to me, that was just really, really unique to watch. Uh, and I think I was like, where's this going to go from here? Because you don't ever get back to fact. People just become more skeptical of it at some point. So even if you go, oh, we'll trust the science or trust the doctors, whatever that means. I feel like that's very counterintuitive to how science works. Um, you know, science is not really based on trust and or belief. But uh, the idea that at this point, everyone started to realize, well, facts even can be skewed. Numbers can be skewed to tell a narrative based on sort of an incentive, generally uh, an incentive based ideology, which seems to be at the core of most things. And I think, you know, at some point you go, well, where does this all go? Like what, what, where does this end up in the future? And to me, I, it kind of made me think about something you said earlier, where we need to allow ourselves to dance more with our language. So it's like in the future, if politicians can't get up there and say facts, because no one believes politicians anymore, it's just going to be about who can say it the most beautifully or who can say it the most poetically or who can say something that, has the most inherent value towards like treating the language with something that has a certain sense of care to it um, as opposed to trying to drive home the fact. And I feel like, you know, that was one of those things I thought like, well, maybe that would be nice in the future. It's like fact can die and it can be just come more about like, you know, uh, how beautiful it can be said. And I go, well, that's also pretty dangerous, but you know, it was just a weird thought that I had. Um, but you know, I don't think telling people what is and what isn't anymore is quite effective. So maybe there'll be a different way. Oh my gosh, I adore that. I had not thought about, I mean, I thought about languages, if there's a good, there must be a bad, but the qualifier of is as being a principle for a rather destructive way of thinking. If you accept that that reality or that the self is constantly becoming how can you ever affirm that anything is to be and this is 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 on the side of order in that respect where it's trying to create something that is it's trying to bring it to be and sort of extinguish the question mark or extinguish the chaos and again that's just like what humans tend to do uh and we have an instinct towards that but i also think that it, it does sort of make us go a little bit crazy in the process so uh see it all keeps coming back to chaos versus order this is good we have a theme here yeah cool. okay so is it is in this way did your studies of magic start to deepen your understanding of of the political sciences like what you're talking about here with the chaos versus order did that come through your studies in hermeticism or was it an inkling you already were feeling? It was an inkling that I was already feeling, but I think it just sort of, um, it was just more confirmed in that respect. And I think uh, one of the, the, the fingers that really set me on fire was just Robert Anton Wilson. Um, I, I loved the way he wrote. I loved the humor in it. Um, I loved, I loved how cynical he was of words because, you know, he was the type of person that was like, all we have is words. All we have is metaphor. All we are is a, central nervous system trying to interpret metaphors so like you know the only way to get past it is to really become more cynical of words and to you know never sort of and that was his concept of e prime of sort of you know dispensing is from the language which is probably closer to zen buddhism than most things but um you know for me that was a thinker that uh just sent me down the rabbit hole like i read prometheus rising at a young age and i was like it became like my Bible. There was like exercises in there, just like it was like a manual and it was fun. Um, and for me, that was something that had a, had a big effect on my, my psychology at the time and 
something that I carried with me forever. And um, I loved his Operation Mindfuck um, and, and, and how that was something that could sort of be carried through the arts as a sort of decentralized movement and something that I, in fact, like just, I tried to, to rekindle even with sort of, started trying to make like a three, three teeth fan group. It was something where it was like, uh, make the um, reboot Operation Mindfuck um, and bring that into like the 21st century and, and sort of like give it a sense of um, uh, online community and create a place where just like, you know, curiosity was the, the real commonality and sort of a, this idea of sort of like undoing self and just, you know, never sort of uh, letting yourself sort of be in those comfort zones that, that make us sort of rigid and absolute. But yeah, I mean, that to me, was probably, that's, that's my top three guys right there, Robert Anton Wilson, for sure. I love that tension between um, the order of a study group uh, in order to do deconstructive work. Totally, totally, absolutely. There's that innate hypocrisy, you know? I love it. Um, Returning back to like how you were answering my question about the desert and the inspiration of the natural environment there, it was also kind of making me think about how that would prepare you to have like a more, um, you would feel more safe in scarcity, I guess, Mm -hmm. which helps lessen the effects of control. So in that way, do you feel like, you know, the land and the plants are helping to inspire deeper gnosis of liberation through just the observation. I think this is a phenomenal observation and um, I think you've articulated it quite nice. Uh, I think that 100%, I think that a lot of um, uh, control and and order is based off of sort of fear. uh, And I think that the most common fear is a fear of dying. Um, It's something that, you know, has shaped our culture, especially here in, in the West, tremendously. And I think that, you know, this idea that, especially during COVID, uh, you know, Pluto's return in America, where we had a million people dying of a disease and everyone felt this sense of real sense of like, the further you are from the power structures, the more likely you are to actually die when things go wrong. And I think that a lot of people were really scared during that time period. Um, and, you know, I'm, 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 I, I favor myself as a, a type of person that likes to take things on sort of headstrong and be sort of intrepid and sort of conquer my own fears, which I like pushing myself. I like going out and, and you know, sort of seeing how far out I can get and camp and stay by myself for long periods of time. I have that sense of preparedness and that sense of self-reliance is sort of a, you know, neo-American transcendentalist movement vibe, you know, even though I think uh, Thoreau is probably just about 20 minutes from society uh, and his mom was probably bringing him apple pies. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I always favored that, that time period in literature and, you know, Emerson and Thoreau and, um, you know, I, I think Walt Whitman, just those are, those are dudes I grew up reading. Um, and something about that has always fascinated me. Um, and I think that, you know, just the concept of self-reliance, it always stuck with me from that, um, as well as what I mean, they had self-reliance, civil disobedience. These are things that, to me, were fundamentally, truly American, in uh, American intellectualism that I think was a, in American literature, this was a great moment for it, too. So, yeah, for me, I, I was just trying to tap into some of that, I think. You know? I love that. Okay, well, you, you've you mentioned the, the Pluto return now, and you said, oh, well, we, maybe we can get to it later. I got to say, like, I am not an astrologer, um, so I know that Pluto has to do with, like, revolution, and there's been a lot of, like, the astrologers I follow on Instagram and Twitter seem to be able to say, oh, look, here's a weird technological thing that's already – AI is – Oh, yeah, like two weeks after Pluto entered Aquarius, the guy who was like the founder of AI uh, ended up saying, this is dangerous and I'm backing out kind of like Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that checks out. Yeah, well, I mean, Pluto, is, as you know, is, a, is, a, is an archetypal god, is, is um, the same archetype as Hades and, and Anubis as well. It's a, it's a god of death, a god of the underworld. Um, which is a pretty nefarious name for a planet, considering they claim that a 13-year-old girl named it, um, which 
is a strange piece of history for anyone that wants to look that up. Um, but Pluto takes about 245 to 250 years to make its weird orbit. Um, and if you look at how old the United States is, uh, it's, 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 it's exhibiting its first Pluto return right now. Um, so the last time Pluto was here was when they signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Um, so if you do want to look at what they call a mundane natal chart for the United States, which is quite fascinating and checks out, makes a lot of interesting sense, but I don't want to bore you guys with that. But the idea that um, America is exhibiting, it's, it's dealing with its first Pluto return, which happens roughly every 250 years. Um, humans obviously can't have Pluto returns because no one lived to 250 years old. But if you look historically uh, at empires that have dealt with Pluto returns, there's only a handful of them. But there's plenty of literature on, on on that, and to watch what that does is Pluto is a, a, a extremely powerful uh, planet in terms of the the archetype and the energy that it exerts. In terms of when you look at how it even just governs nuclear energy, the idea that you know plutonium on the uh, we decided to name it plutonium what what makes nuclear bombs. So uh, I think there's a, a, a sort of lot of esoteric thoughts that can be connected uh, between um, America and, and Pluto being in the, in the night sky when they signed the Declaration of Independence at like three something in the morning, which, you know, um, I, I do believe the founding fathers of this country um, had some pretty good uh, esoteric intellect they were all high degree masons they were aware of what they were doing mm -hmm. they, they they you know um weren't just uh, a couple of bros hanging out at the bar said hey let's sign it now after a few beers i think that um, this country was founded on, on magical documents as well and i think that um you know if you want to kind of take deeper dives into this stuff uh for anyone who wants to do research i think it's fascinating stuff so america's dealing with first pluto return um and i feel like we feel it you know um, and then when it came back, it came back in, in Capricorn, which, you know, is, uh, is governed systems and, you know, uh, sort of more structured things ruled by Saturn. Um, and I, I think we saw a lot of stuff really just kind of coming undone in many ways. We were seeing like, uh, almost like the, the reins of old are sort of being sort of let go as we sort of head into a sort of like new paradigm shift and, um, you know, uh, just, Again, this is probably going to spiral out if I go further down this road here. Um, but it's actually is a centerpiece to the new record because I was sort of fascinated by it. Um, okay. So I don't want to give too much away there, but um, a lot of fun sort of uh, down the rabbit hole Easter egg stuff in the new record. So you, so I lost you there for a second. I'm sorry, but you were saying that the Pluto return is the centerpiece for the new album. Yes. So is that something that can be like already kind of picked up on in the singles that you release? I think so. And I'm I'd like, there's been like a long road of Easter eggs that I've been leading up to. And like, everyone sort of likes to dissect that stuff. And I've watched it, you know, the uh, operation mindfuck group, people starting to kind of piece this stuff together. Um, and that's just something I've always liked to do where it's like, send them down the rabbit hole, let people, you know, sort of connect the dots and, and the autonomy of the discovery that is sort of like, uh, I think there's something special in there, like allow people to try and figure out stuff themselves and create their own theories about it. So um, some people just listen and say, hey, cool, like whatever. Like they don't even want to go down those rabbit holes, but for the people that do want to figure out a little bit more stuff, there's a lot of cool art that can help decode some of these weird little mysteries that I've been trying to unravel as well. Oh, I love that. Oh. And I love that you give people the agency to create their own meaning in it as well. I mean, this was something that for me, was really important to like how I got into certain bands, um, you know, growing up, like tool was a band, like for me that, that sent me down rabbit holes of, of, you know, creating my own meanings and senses of self-discovery and new topics and things that I found really awesome. Um, and you know, it's funny cause me and Adam became from tool became very good friends because of this. So it's like the same way that I like to do it. It's something that I kind of just learned from them. Um, so yeah, no, I think that's important. I think the, uh, that sort of agency and autonomy of, of discovering things on their own is something that makes people excited. It makes me excited. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's the art of, of life to be able to weave together your own puzzle pieces. Absolutely. 100%. All right. Well, um, 
I normally end the podcast by uh, letting my guests know that this is like your free question. So whatever you want to say or whatever you feel like has been left unsaid, this would be. I'm just incredible. Like that was two hours. I feel like we talked for 15 minutes or like that was, that was. Oh no. It's a, it's an hour long, but I, I let in for the, you know, an hour and a half, maybe two hours, depending on if my guest is a rambler, yeah, yeah. which you're actually not. No, I can you ramble. Trust saying me. that, but I can ramble. Trust me. Uh, I was trying to be mindful of it because I'll go, you know. Um, but no, I, I don't think I have anything left unsaid here. Um, you know, for me, uh, it's just more about kind of like whatever you guys want to talk about. I can talk about anything. I'm one of those people that like. I'll just talk, talk, talk. So you get me going on something, but I don't have anything that like, I'm not trying to like pump anything. I'm not like, Oh, go, go listen to my music. Or go buy the new record. I don't really care about that. You know? I got nothing. <laughs> join to plug. Operation Mindfuck or don't. Yeah. Join Operation Mindfuck. Sign up for my class. You know, like I don't care about that. You know? Okay. I am thrilled that this ended up being so much about the intersection between politics and magic. That's yeah, like, yeah my favorite thing so i appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom um they call it wisdom but perspectives you know like i don't you know so i'm happy to always talk and um sorry that it was it was so hard to schedule but uh you know it's it's a pleasure if you ever need to do it in the future just give me a shout